Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome to this episode of Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic, and today's guest is Dr. Anthony Biglin, behavioral scientist and clinical psychologist. And we're talking about his book, The Nurture Effect How the Science of Human Behavior Can Improve Our Lives and Our World. This is, in some sense, a memoir of 40 years of work, exceptional work, looking at how behavioural science not only has changed the world but continues to change the world in pro-social ways that we can be involved in doing so in our local communities. A very exciting episode, something that uh, is very interesting and dear to me uh, and really continues to speak along the same lines as the works of Stephen Hayes and David Sloan Wilson. So without any further ado... Please welcome Tony Biglin. Anthony, a very warm welcome and a big thank you for coming onto the show. Uh, really looking forward to talking about the nature effect. I know that being a behavioural scientist, you've got a lot to, to, to talk about in this in this space, but more, more so the excitement that brings, brings me forward is having spoken with David Sloan Wilson and Stephen C. Hayes. Uh, who do um, some incredible work and, and to have someone on like yourself again is, is you know, just, just another exciting moment for me. So thank you for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about, you know, if we, if we just get straight stuck into the book, The Nature Effect, and, and how it's come about really. Well, let's see. Uh, I'm 76 years old and um, I haven't retired because it's just gotten interesting. Uh, I've been, uh, it, it, I, you know, in my career, the degree to which behavioral sciences have made advances is just amazing. Over the last 50 years, there's been far, it, it's really the first time that they begin to really uh, evaluate, uh, you know, treatment interventions, preventive interventions, uh, and we've accumulated an enormous amount of knowledge. And so back around probably 2010, I began to feel like I had been blessed to be in a community, Eugene, Oregon, where there were all kinds of uh, contributions made to behavioral science, but more generally to be in, uh, in this era of behavioral scientists watching all of the things that have developed. And I felt like I was, I wanted to sort of write a memoir of my uh, experience in that community and really emphasize what we have learned. <clears throat> I was on a National Academy of Medicine committee that uh, issued a report in 2009 that summarized what we've learned about uh, prevention, uh, which is a lot. And, um, and in fact, one of the conclusions that that uh, the committee reached was that 
if we could make use of all the things we've learned in the last 50 years about prevention, that we could ensure that you know, if it was widely adopted, that we could ensure that virtually every young person arrived at, a, at adulthood with the skills, interests, values, and health habits they need to lead a productive life in caring relationships with other people. And that was what the committee concluded, but I actually wrote that statement. And uh, that's kind of been my mantra. Well, the, the uh, National Academy reports are usually about that big. You know, and the people say, well, will they influence anybody? I said, well, you can always hit them with the book, you know. <laughs> I thought I could write something that was a little bit more readable. And I think I've been fairly successful at that, given the response, uh, mostly from behavioral scientists who've read it. But it was basically just an effort to bring together what we've learned and the nurture effect, the, the idea that, that nurturing could be you know, a fundamental aspect of this, it kind of arose from just my analysis of uh, what was working. And so what I've emphasized and what I think is true in the literature is that uh, basically problems develop in environments that are stressful and that fail to reinforce pro-social behavior. So I think of nurturing environments as having four aspects. The, the first is that they minimize toxic biological and social conditions. And the, and, and the biological include things like uh, high levels of omega-6 in the diet, which uh, undermines neural development. Um, and um, uh, also um, oh, high levels of lead. Uh, in the in, in airborne lead and so on. So there are many physiological things, but there are also socially toxic conditions. And those largely involve aversive behavior uh, that people use to deal with each other. So for example, in families uh, that are having problems, especially families living in poverty or living in disadvantaged neighborhoods or being discriminated against, uh, the, that puts stress on the families that makes it more likely that family members will use coercive, aversive behavior to deal with each other. So an uh, example I use is um, uh, mom says to Johnny, Johnny, it's time to go to bed. And Johnny says, I don't want to go to bed. And mom backs off, right? Well, what just happened? Well, Johnny used his aversive behavior to get mom to back off. He's not going to bed. He's been reinforced. Mom has backed off and Johnny's calmed down. She's reinforced. He's not going to be nasty anymore. And one of the, the leading people in the, in the research in the last 50 years was Jerry Patterson, who died a couple of years ago. And he was here in Eugene, Oregon. I was honored to, to know him. And what he did was he went into families that were high risk at high risk for aggressive social behavior and he studied these patterns of interaction and found that families that were more likely to re, you know, uh, raise kids who were aggressive and, and uncooperative and so on, had high levels of everybody using aversive behavior. People had gotten skilled at that. You know, you're nagging me, you're nagging me. I explode, you back off. I just got reinforced. No one's having a good time, but people are coping with each other with aversive behavior. So a child who has become... Uh, not cooperative and skilled in using aversive behavior uh, gets to school. And what happens? Well, they don't do what the teacher wants, so they don't do well academically. Uh, and they're rejected by their peers because they don't get along well with peers. 
And that puts kids on a trajectory toward adolescent problem behavior, which is a trajectory that leads to the entire range of problems. So one of the things I've stressed in my work is that all these problems of psychological behavioral problems are intertwined and they all result from the same environmental conditions. So back to nurturing conditions, we need to help families and schools replace nasty aversive behavior with kind, caring behavior. We need to richly reinforce pro-social behavior. And what I mean by richly reinforce, I'm not talking about M&Ms and stickers. I'm talking about listening and caring and respecting and enjoining uh, kids and in, in what they're doing and so on to develop all the kinds of things that kids need to develop. But the other thing about nurturing environments is that they need to limit opportunities and influences for problem behavior. Opportunities like um, kids being left home alone without adult supervision. That's a time when kids are liable to get into problematic behavior. But there are also uh, influences on problem behavior, like the marketing of cigarettes, which by the way, you Australians uh, have done an excellent job on that. I was actually an, an expert uh, witness for Australia when it was trying to combat the efforts of uh, the drug, uh, the tobacco companies to stop you from doing what you've done. Uh, you have had a significant effect on youth smoking and I congratulate you on that. But anyway, so marketing of cigarettes, marketing of unhealthful food, marketing of alcohol, uh, these are factors that contribute to problem development. And the, and the last aspect of nurturing environments is that they promote um, the um, they promote psychological flexibility. And if you talk to Steve Hayes, you've probably heard about psychological flexibility. It's basically the ability to live your values, to act on the service of your values, even when your mind tells you uh, that it's hard, that you can't do it. And so um, I, I, you know, I was first exposed to acceptance and commitment therapy long before it was called acceptance and commitment therapy. And uh, as a clinical psychologist, it changed my practices, and I and it was just it was just really impressive how much better a psychologist I became because of my exposure to acceptance and commitment therapy. But I'm doing all the talking, and I'm not sure that uh, I'm saying things you're particularly interested in. So, what do you think? No, no, this is exactly this is exactly where, where, where I like to go. Wherever you're passionate about is, is where this podcast goes. And and uh hearing about these the, 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 these factors are uh, I think they're certainly standing out for for me in terms of that pro-social behavior, having a kind, compassionate response. Yep. Um, you know, the adversive behavior. You know, the reinforcement is really from an avoidance point of view, which is yes, exactly that, that act model and and you know, how do we live in line with with being able to actually do that is a very hard, hard thing to do. And that's where that psychological flexibility, I suppose, comes comes in. Can I ask a little bit about you? You've obviously been in the field some, you know, 40 plus plus years. Where, where did the what did the early days look like? Because um, you've, you've sort of spoken about this is in some sense a bit of a memoir or a, or a yeah. summary of of, uh, you know, your your um, journey through this. What do the early days look like and, and, and how has it kind of evolved to, to what we know today? Well, I got my degree uh, in my PhD from the University of Illinois, but it was in social psychology and organizational psychology. It wasn't in clinical psychology. 
And soon after I got it, I decided that I wanted to uh, get trained in clinical work. So I got an extra year of postdoctoral clinical training and did an internship at the University of Wisconsin. But in the process of that, um, I came in contact with B.F. Skinner's work. And B.F. Skinner um, was um, somebody who, you know, in, in mainstream psychology said, oh, no, you know, he, he's it was rejected by mainstream psychology. And I was a product of mainstream psychology. But I had a colleague at the University of Washington, and I was talking about some work that Stanley Schachter had done on um, people's behavior. And, and he, I can remember him saying, yeah, but Schachter has it all wrong. And so I said, well, what could I read? And they said, well, you could read uh, Skinner's verbal behavior. So I started reading Skinner's verbal behavior and it didn't make any sense to me. But then I started reading science and human behavior, and I and and I had I was working on my dissertation at the time, and my dissertation was on the characteristics of academic areas, and I was trying to understand how they differed, and to do that I did a multidimensional scaling of the characteristics of academic areas, and I found that you could basically uh, characterize any academic area in terms of three dimensions. One was whether or not it had a, a fixed paradigm or it didn't have a paradigm. Uh, the second was whether it was biologically oriented, you know, in, in any sense related to biology or not. And the third was whether it was pure or applied research or study. And what that made me realize was there's a wonderful book by Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And in that book, he argued that the way that scientific revolutions occurred is that somebody comes along and says, no, here's a better way to think about it. And it reorganizes people's thinking. So for example, uh, Copernicus said that, uh, no, the, sun, the earth was not the center of the universe, that the earth went around the sun. And it accounted for a bunch of anomalies that had been observed. Why was this here and that there and so on? And it made sense of them. And it changed, that was a new paradigm. Uh, evolution was a new paradigm. And so I, I'm reading this and I also had done this analysis of paradigmatic areas and non-paradigmatic areas in academia. And psychology was in the non-paradigmatic side. And I went, yeah, that's about right. And, you know, there's all different kinds of people. And so then I'm reading B.F. Skinner's work and I'm realizing he, wait a minute, he is saying that every aspect of human behavior can be understood by understanding the context that selects uh, uh, behavior. And so I started getting into that and got uh, deeply into it. And I spent a year at University of Wisconsin reading all everything I could find on behavior therapy. I was well educated I, I, by the end of my uh, year. Um, but okay, so fast forward. Um, I think I've described how you know we began in the 1980s to do randomized trials to test the effects of things. You know, the first randomized trial was done in something like 1949. And there are now been thousands of them done, not just in psychology, but in medicine and other areas. Um, but we began to accumulate a lot of knowledge. And that knowledge was mostly around how individuals and maybe families uh, are affected. But 
we got to get to everybody. And if you've talked to David Sloan Wilson, have you talked to him since he published Atlas Hugged? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, um, uh, I spoke with him after uh, uh, um, his recent one, the, the view of, uh, This View of Life. Um, yes. Well, s- since then, he's published a novel, and it's called Atlas Hugged, and it is a, a, it's a, a response to Ayn Rand's, uh, you know, Atlas Shrugged. And, but what he has in there is this, this his, the hero of this thing starts an organization and they have a, um, they have jackets, you know, in this movement and they have a dot, a circle, an American flag and the world. And the notion is that at every level of society, we need to, to, to have that entity working, not just for itself, but for the rest of the, the world. Sound familiar? So the dot is an individual, the circle is a, uh, a group or organization, the flag is a country and the world is the whole world. And he's arguing that at every level, we need to have that kind of cooperation. We need to have nurturing environments at every level. We need every entity to be concerned about the well-being, not just of themselves, but of, of everyone. Well, look at capitalism as it currently stands. Uh, it, it is just a monument to the self-aggrandizement of organizations. It's uh, the, you know, Milton Friedman's uh, argument that the only business of a corporation should be to maximize its income. Well, that has distorted uh, societies massively, particularly in the United States, but also in uh, many other countries. Um, And so, you know, that's, you know, if you read the second half of the nurture effect, I begin to get into the notion that uh, it's not enough to be really good at how I could treat an individual or how I could prevent a family from, you know, raising kids who are aggressive and so on. We need to go up to higher levels of organization. And in particular, we need to reform capitalism because the version of capitalism we have now is one that has just decimated this country. Uh, and and is, uh, I, 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 I did a talk yesterday uh, at, for the UK and I've got a graph in my slides that's uh, the relationship between economic inequality and all kinds of problems. And it turns out that the more unequal a country, the more problems you have, health problems, psychological, behavioral problems, and so on. Well, the UK, uh, the United States is the highest. We are the, we're number one. We're the highest level of economic inequality of any developed country. But the UK is also uh, quite high. And I think Australia's at, you know, at the higher end. And beware, because if you let this go, it's going to get worse. And so we have to, to reform society at the level of, at the higher levels of government uh, adopting policies that ensure the well being of every person versus ensuring the well being of uh, in the very wealthy. And so that's why I wrote Rebooting Capitalism How to Forge a Society That Can Work for Everyone. And I am working on how we can get reforms in every sector of society where the foundational idea for those, for that, for the, for that each entity is that they want to examine the degree to which they're uh, uh, ensuring the well-being of every person. Uh, and so, for example, the implications for a corporation are that you, 
corporations would be responsible not only for the well-being of investors, but for the well-being of their employees, their customers, and the community as a whole, and which is the B Corp movement, and uh, which I think is is worldwide. It's certainly in the United States. Um, so, you know, adopting and and promoting those values as opposed to self-aggrandizing values that you know say. Uh, if I make a lot of money, it must be good. You know, the invisible hand theory. So, so I'm, that's what I'm most excited about. I have created an organization called Values to Action, which is trying to uh, advance these reforms. And we're doing it by creating action circles, small groups of people who could work on a very specific slice of the problem and make a specific contribution to uh, to changing the situation. And it, we're just getting started, but we're working on improving child well-being, on reducing pollution, on reducing uh, economic uh, disparities, on reducing um, uh, learning disparities, um, and so on. So, um, like I said, yeah, can go you, ahead. Yeah, can you talk about some of those uh, areas as to... Uh, how some of those programs or ideas have, have come about. I'm assuming a lot of this is, is data-driven as well or, or finding out where some of the um, inequalities are or, or pitfalls are. Can you talk us through some of those? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the modus operandi of these action circles are, okay, what's a very specific problem? Why is this a problem? In what way is it a problem? So let's, let's just take... Uh, uh, actually, I'll walk you through all of the or a number of the ways in which disadvantaged populations are disadvantaged. And so one of the ways is they have under-resourced schools and those schools are less successful in teaching uh, the things that kids need to know. And they're less successful at helping kids to learn to be cooperative, to have self-regulation and so on. So right there, we have a tremendous amount of evidence about what is needed to ensure that kids develop successfully, but it's not in widespread use. And most of the effort uh, to, and I was on another National Academy of Medicine committee in 2019, which was, we we're doing an update of the 2009 report. And what we were feeling is we haven't made much progress. We had all this knowledge in 2009, but getting it out there has been very slow. So the action circles are a way to, to, to promote, to, you know, to accelerate that. So uh, just take uh, uh, academic disparities. In this country, uh, and I'm sure this is the case for indigenous people in Australia and poorer people in Australia as well, that they're less likely to be successful academically. And one of the foundational things for academic success is the ability to read. In this country, we have about, if you're lucky, 40% uh, of kids are proficient readers by grade four. And there's a lot of evidence that if, if you can't read competently uh, by, age, by grade three, you'll never read competently. And that will consign you to a life of poverty uh, and, uh, and premature death. And so dealing with these disparities is extremely important. But it's just one slice of what a you know somebody living in a um, but it's a pretty important slice. Well, it turns out that uh, an enormous amount of the research that's been done on academic success, on reading success, was done here in Eugene, Oregon. And so, uh, 
I, I'm, I'm connected with a bunch of people who are good at reading instruction. In fact, I have a meeting tomorrow with a group of them because what we want to do is design action circles that can work in a particular community or even you know down to a neighborhood, just my kid's school, and create a circle of people of five to 10 people who would commit to work for maybe just a couple of months to advance what's needed. And we know what's needed. We need more uh, effective instructional practices in schools. We can define them. If a teacher wants to do those, if a school wants to do those, we can tell them how to do it. We have the training materials to do that. So that's one, they're teaching better. But the kids who come to these schools are disadvantaged and you can't always get the schools to do what works. In fact, there's been resistance to effective reading instruction. Okay, there are other things you can do. We did a randomized trial where we took kids out of class, randomly chose kids who were low in reading skill and took them out of class and taught them for about half an hour twice a week with supplemental instruction using the best teaching methods. We found that those kids two years later were still better on comprehension than the kids who hadn't gotten that program. So if you give them a boost, you know, it, it can really make a difference. I think I can vouch for that. I, uh, my parents migrated from Serbia and uh, I went to a program, which I think many schools in Australia have, which is called ESL, which is English as a second language. Mm-hmm. And I remember it felt awful, you know, getting pulled out of your class to go, go read with someone, but it was one-on-one tutoring. Uh, yes. I, I had no idea at the time. I just thought, you know, why am I being singled out? But mum and dad couldn't teach me at home how to, to read English. As a matter of fact, you know, they, they, they still struggle as adults, um, having come here as adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, I obviously you know, am proficient in it. I think that was a major, major boost. And it wasn't for an extended period of time. I, I can't remember exactly, but I don't believe it was more than, you know, six or so months that, that I was probably in the program, maybe less. Mm-hmm. But uh, No uh, older Oh, look, I, I don't know. I, I actually think... I think it was done in primary school. So, yeah, look, it, it, it's all a blur. So it must have been very early. Um, so it was all a blur, but I just remember how awful it felt. Um, but uh, I have no doubt that that I'm a product of, of uh, you know, uh, having that advantage where, you know, some time, energy and, and, and uh, nurturing was invested into me um, that, that, not that my parents um, did, didn't sort of, you know, love and the like, but they didn't have that capacity to do so, at least uh, at, at an English level. So I'd yeah. like to vouch for what you're saying. Well, you know, and in fact, the study we did had mostly uh, Hispanic kids where it was the same kind of issue in terms of many of them, their parents didn't speak much English. So, and you were fortunate to have a school that did that. And, um, but, you know, I, I, what, what excites me about this is the possibility that we would enable people who are living in disadvantaged communities to kind of take the bull by the horns, not just hope that the this, this school district uh, will, you know, make sure their children learn to read, but actually take steps. So one is getting teachers to get the proper uh, s- skills. A second is to do supplemental instruction. But it doesn't have to be left to the schools. If a community is really concerned that they want every one of their kids to learn to read, they can do other things. Churches and other organizations, voluntary organizations, can be helped to help kids learn to read. There's a book called How to Teach Your Children to Read in 100 Easy Lessons. And uh, 
it was it, it was written by some people here in Eugene who were developing classroom-based instruction, but they weren't getting as far in, you know, getting people to adopt the instructional techniques as they would. So they just put them in this book for, you know, it's a self-help book for parents. Well, my wife is trained in direct instruction, which is this, this teaching method. So we have two boys and uh, Georgia brings this copy of this book, how to teach your children to read. And I, and I did a lot of the, you know, taking the kids through it. And so uh, both of them could read fluently by the time they got to kindergarten. You know, it, it, the book works, right? And in fact, um, my wife and I were asked to take care of the kids uh, one when our, you know, my son and daughter-in-law had date night. And so I was asked to read to Grayson when he was about four years old. And so I said, what do you want me to read? And he pulls out the very same volume of this book that I used to teach my, his, his father to read. I was so touched and, you know, and I read him a story, but, you know, we can, we can assist whole communities in doing this. We do not have, we can, you know, do a, 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 you know, go around the schools if, if need be. Uh, and so uh, I'm really excited about that as a possibility uh, and to, to use that, and, and, if, and uh, so if you do that in a community, in a school, and it works, right? We're trying to design these with the protocol that anybody who wants to create an action circle in their community can do this. So if we're gonna have a social movement to change the society, we can take all of the things we know and we're gonna see if we can create action circles that advance those things in, in every community. We can do the same thing with reducing uh, 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 problematic uh, police activities. Uh, we can do it with uh, reducing pollution in neighborhoods of disadvantage. We're doing it with social emotional learning, which is the, you know, the other aspect of education is, uh, you know, good programs. And in fact, uh, one of them is the good behavior game, which is now being fairly widely adopted in Australia. Uh, and you know about the good behavior game? No, play, please explain so uh, sometime in the 1960s, there was a teacher uh, in uh, Kansas at the University of Kansas. Her, her husband is a graduate student at the University of Kansas, which you may know is a place of behavior analysis. So um, there were three third, I think it was third grade classes, and she got one of them. She's a new teacher. She's just come to town. And there were three classes and the other teachers who were there, they assorted the kids into those three classes and guess, guess which kids were in her classroom, right? So by Thanksgiving, she's ready to quit. So her husband says, well, let's go talk to, to Montrose Wolf, who's one of the behavior analysts in the, in the program. And they talked about it and, and he asked, well, are there times when the kids you know, behave well? And she says, well, if you have a spelling bee, you know, they, they enjoy that. So, so somehow they came up with the idea that maybe they could have small groups of kids work together and they could get it. The team could get a reward if they were, you know, on task and so on. And they showed remarkable changes. And, you know, they had uh, the reading, they were measuring disruptive behavior and disruptive behavior is, you know, kids going off like this or, you know, uh, just not paying attention or even being defiant. And so they were tracking that. And so they had it in reading and math. 
And they started playing the good behavior game just in reading. And guess what? Disruptive behavior went way down. It stayed high in math. Then they tried in math. It went, you know, it got better there. And eventually it was better in throughout the class. So that was 50 years ago. And there are a lot of studies that showed the good behavior game's value. And in fact, a friend of mine, Shep Kellum uh, at Johns Hopkins University, uh, wanted to see if it could affect uh, at-risk kids in terms of their life trajectory. And so he introduced it in a, in a, in a group of uh, first and second grade classrooms uh, and randomly assigned, the, it was a random assignment of kids to classrooms and, and to conditions and so on. Well, the group that got the good behavior game uh, just in first and second grade were significantly less likely to uh, develop ADHD. They were significantly more likely to, uh, well, less likely to be arrested when they were in middle school, less likely to drop out of school, more likely to attend college, less likely to have problems, uh, just as, as young adults, less likely to have problems with substance use, antisocial behavior, um, uh, suicidal behavior. Um, and, um, and in fact, there's a study just coming out that followed that group into adulthood. They're more likely to vote. They got the good behavior game. There's been an analysis of the return on investment for this. Um, it showed that every dollar that's in, invested in, in the good behavior game produces a return on investment of about $64. Now, if you could get that kind of return on investment, you wouldn't be talking to me. <laughs> You'd be off, you know, you know, I don't know what you'd do with your money. Hopefully it would be a good thing. You could send some of it to values to action. But that return on investment was because the healthcare costs were reduced. Uh, the, the amount of money that kids uh, earned when they became adults was greater. Uh, the criminal justice uh, costs were much lower. Uh, there were all kinds of benefits. And so a friend of mine uh, subsequently developed a way to uh, organize and promote uh, the, the good behavior game. And that's the one that's being done in Australia. And I will tell you, I helped to implement it in um, some elementary schools here in Oregon. We just did it. We started with some of the grades and some of, of the, uh, in three elementary schools. And by the end of the year, all the teachers wanted to do it in those schools. And by the, by three years into it, all, six of the seven school districts in this one county we were working had adopted the good behavior game. It just, it's just a beautiful thing to see. And is it, is it as simple, and my apologies, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm capturing this completely. Is it as simple as assisting kids to, uh, behave not on an individual basis, but as a group. So they learn from exactly. each other as a group. Exactly. They sort of identify with one another and that, that therefore right. is more leverage for them to um, be rewarded or um, exactly. miss out as a group. And, 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 and a group. cohesiveness there that yeah, keeps everyone in line, uh, well, keeps everyone focused, keeps everyone attentive on the, on the same goal. Um, it effectively works in that in that sort of. It, it's matter. very much what David Sloan Wilson talks about in terms of selection at the group level, because that's exactly what it is. And in fact, when I went, when I first uh, visited David Sloan Wilson uh, in Binghamton, um, I we're sitting in his living room and we're talking about this stuff, and I start telling him about Dennis Embry's uh, work with the Good Behavior Game, and we got him on a cell phone, and I introduced them. 
And uh, and so uh, David likes to say that, you know, if you remember the movie, The Three Amigos, there are actually four amigos. Well, David and Steve and Dennis and I published a paper, you know, sort of putting all this together. But um, I mean, you mentioned, you know, how do you get kids to, to work together? Yes, you reward them for cooperation. And that and suddenly, you know, if, if you're the, the cut up, the guy who's always disruptive, but we're always laughing because you were so amused by what you're doing, right? The teacher's ready to kill you, but, you know, and so um, this rearranges the contingencies because suddenly I have a stake that you're not being disruptive because we're all going to get to, you know, an extra five minutes of recess or something like that. And so uh, uh, Dennis likes to talk about, you know, the notion of, okay, teach, how frequently could you praise positive behavior in classroom? If you did it once a minute, all day long, right? Okay, here's the amount of reinforcement the kids get for that behavior, right? How many kids are in your class? 25, right? And what are they reinforcing, right? And you're outnumbered, right? If, if you don't recruit the reinforcement of those kids in the class, you're going to have some serious problems. And so, but what Dennis has done is he's devised all of these clever ways to make this happen. So he starts with uh, uh, what's called Pax Vision. Pax is, uh, means uh, peace, health, happiness, and productivity. It's the positive stuff. And he... So he has the kids uh, say, if this were the most wonderful classroom you could ever imagine being in, what would you see more of? What would you hear more of? What would you do more of? Uh, and so, and, and what would you feel more of? And so he has a poster and they make a list of all the things they'd like to see. The kids are participating. This isn't the teacher saying, here's what you need to do. This, the kids are saying they want to do this. Oh, and what would you like to see, hear, feel, and do less of? And he calls those spleens. Spleens is a made up word because he's trying to take the venom and the anger out of disruptive behavior. And so, you know, a, a teacher is really successful if uh, at some point she does something or he does something. And one of the kids says, hey, teacher, that's a spleen. And the teacher goes, yeah, you're right. I need to do less of that. So it's not, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself or you're bad or stupid, but simply, yeah, we all spleen and, you know, uh, you know, we're trying to do less of that and trying to do more of this. So then he's, you've got this, the kids have, uh, you know, described that, but it, it, they don't want you to, to simply um, put that up on the wall and have it be forgotten. You can use that every day. Kids, we're going to do 15 minutes of silent reading. And what would be some, some packs that we'd like to see? And the kids are raising their hand and say, you know, they're making a social commitment in front of others to what they want to do. We published a paper where we took this, all of these, what are called kernels, Pax Vision and all the other things we do and described how it could be used in families and how it could be used in workplaces and, and, and other settings. It's basically the, you know, the, the basic things for making nurturing environments. So uh, how, how am I doing on action circles? We're, no, no, lovely, lovely. I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, listening in, in, in all. I'm sure our listeners will be doing exactly the same, you know, hearing about, about how these things come, come, come together. It, it just sounds 
Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, as you're speaking, thinking about some of the social things that have been really successful here in Australia. And, and one of those is, you know, around littering. You know, Australia has incredible compliance and, and I think we're, yeah. we're culturally really good about not littering. And it's because we look down on it, you know, where you know, if, if I go into a, a, uh, you know, four-wheel drive group that I'm a part of that goes, you know, we go through the bush, there's always comments about people saying, you know, uh, went to this campsite and people had left their trash, you know, we've picked it up and other people are saying, well done, thanks for picking it up and, you know, we found this and everyone's looking down at everyone. There's there's a there's a advertising campaign in, in Australia, you know, which says, you know, don't be a tosser and it effectively has, you know, someone driving in their vehicle throwing something out of the, of the window and, you know, they call him a tosser. Uh, and because it's a bit catchy and, it's, you know, it's very Aussie, um, uh, you know, there, there's a current one. I actually just saw it last night. I don't think it's going to stick, but um, it was it was effectively saying that, you know, if you drink drive, uh, you're a prick. And it's a, it's a bit harsher, you know, it's a bit, it's a, and I was saying yeah. to my wife, gosh, you know, I can't believe we're at this stage in, in life where we're, where, you know, we're kind of labelling people this way, but clearly they're trying different things. And so, you know, rather than sort of uh, criticising them, it's like they're, 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 there's some really good social things that they're, they're trying to find what's the glue, you know. And if you find that little word like a spleen or, you know, like a tosser or whatever the language, uh, it, it sticks. And, you know, clearly we've done some incredible things, uh, as you say, from um, uh, a health perspective in, in yes. smoking, uh, you know, it's, it's becoming antisocial. No one wants to leave the group, go out of a restaurant to go yeah. outside 25 metres now or whatever the number is, you've got to wait, you've got to go away from the front door. You kind of become isolated. So everyone, you know, even people uh, that have been smoking their whole lives are, are reducing the number of cigarettes, which, you know, it's not only just about people not smoking or people stopping. It's, it, it's great reduction and obviously the cost has become phenomenal. Here, I, oh yes, here I got to show you this. Little little black book that you're grabbing. What uh, or what is that? This ah. is a, this is a pack of cigarettes from Australia, and um, as you can see. It, uh, this is a man who died of cancer and, uh, you know, there's more. And this, these are the uh, packages and all the cigarettes have to be sold this way. And it does say it does, it'll have the brand name there, tiny thing. And I actually was an expert in, in uh, lawsuit in the federal lawsuit in this country against the tobacco institute, uh, institute uh, the tobacco industry. And that which is why Australia asked me to help with this. But I hadn't really studied the research on on these kinds of packages. This has a significant impact in reducing uh, people smoking. And you guys are way out ahead of everybody. We've, we've, I, I believe we've taken it one step further now. That was for a good long period. Um, at, at some stage, I think they actually even removed all packaging. So it had to be plain. So you couldn't go out and have brand versus brand um, recognition. Um, and even in like where they're sold, service stations, um, uh, you know, grocery shops, 
they're all behind a counter, but they, they actually have to be covered as well. So you know, I, it's almost I, like a garage, you know, you have to lift up this big, you know, garage sort of door to reveal them. So no one, they're out of sight. No one right. can see them anymore. And, and there's just so many good things, not to mention there's a very strong economical economic forcing factor. They're now like, you know, $50 a packet or something, something yeah. absurd. So we've done an exceptional job. You have, and actually that uh, reminds me that one of the other things that I think is really important for how we can create a society, societies that work for everyone is the public health perspective. And, you know, the history of much of psychology and behavioral science has been focused on individual behavior and how you change individual behavior. And we've gotten better as we've just discussed and how to help groups, you know, cooperate and work together and so on. But the public health perspective is very simple. It's simply, let's pay attention to the incidence and prevalence of disease. And it started out with the, the uh, plague in Europe where uh, a third of the people died uh, when the plague hit Europe in the 14th century. Um, and what happened was that they began to count how many people had died and they, how many people were infected and so on. And so they're starting to pay attention to the incidence and the prevalence of, of you know, disease and so on. But now, you know, it's clear you can apply that to any problem. COVID-19, certainly. Uh, but you can also apply it to the incidence of kids starting to smoke or the prevalence of people smoking. And, and your public health people and those in our country are looking at, you know, how can we get the percent of people who are smoking? But the same thing is true of positive things. Uh, what percent of the people are, are, uh, are respectful, are nurturing, are kind? Or we, here in Eugene, we have a kindness campaign. We're trying to increase the degree to which people are being kind. And the reason that that's important is that, you know, we, we can show you that we can do a really good job if we have control of a school or, uh, you know, or we can help families, we can help schools and so on. But it's not good enough unless you're increasing the incidence of people who are, you know, behaving with pro-social values and norms and so on and reducing the incidence of, uh, of antisocial behavior. Uh, so the public health perspective is is a critical part of what we need to do to change our societies. What are some things that 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 we can do? I know in Australia at the moment, there's a campaign for bowel cancer screening. Um, you know, there's, there's ads going on where, you know, uh, because it, the, the difficulty that we have uh, is that the test itself is not very pleasant. So my my understanding is you're supposed to take a swab. Um, and um, I, I suppose, you know, press it on your own feces and then, you know, put it in its container and send it off. And a lot of people don't like doing that. There, there's an avoidance, natural avoidance sure. to doing so. Um, but there's a big campaign trying to push people because it's, it's pre, it, if it's caught early, it's extremely preventable. It, it, it's treated with like colon cancer. Colon cancer, that's right, colon cancer. Um, so what are the sorts of things that, that uh, you know, communities can do um, or, you know, policy changes that, that, that can uh, support how to do, you know, health on that broader level at that, that, that national um, or, you know, even international level? Well, it, you know, you can do it at the national level, but I think in some ways it needs to get down to the community level. And so uh, in this country, we're making some progress on that. But for example, 
uh, in the state of Oregon, you can get uh, measures of the, the percent of the population that have addictive disorders, alcohol, other drugs, and so on, which is a very substantial problem in this country and in our state. But you really got to get down to the community level. And so one of the things I've been pushing in this state is that we have an assessment system, and there are good ones for adolescents that could uh, assess the, the proportion of kids who are binge drinking, the proportion of kids who are drinking at all, and all of the things related to drinking and smoking and, um, and antisocial behavior. And we need to monitor those at the level of the community. You know, there's some research that shows that if you're in a work organization and you put a chart on the wall of a behavior you want to see more of, just putting the chart on the wall actually can motivate people to change their behavior. Well, I submit that every community needs a chart on the wall of the well-being of the population and that we need have to have people participating and ensuring that you know the whole population is doing better. We have an enormous way to go in, in, in this country and I suspect there's plenty to be done in Australia. Um, but um, you know, it, it's again, a public health orientation and a commitment to the well-being of every person. Uh, and that's something that, uh, you know, there's been huge division in this country. Uh, it has been, um, it, it is largely the result of advocacy for free market economics. You might not think that that has a lot to do with the divisions, but uh, the success of the, the conservative billionaire coalition, which I write about in Rebooting Capitalism, uh, was largely because they were able to convince poor whites to vote against their own interests but to ensure that they would be better off than black people. Uh, it was, it was subtly and not so subtly a racist effort, uh, which has gotten, which, you know, Trump took uh, advantage of and amplified greatly. And we're going to see if we can get off away from that. I think Biden's doing a good job of moving the discussion to how we can, you know, better benefit everyone. Um, I have a broader question, um, yeah. uh, and I, I appreciate there might not be a, a clear answer because it's going to be a big question. Clearly, capitalism in, it, in its current form has some inherent problems. Uh, right. it, it is a forcing factor toward individualism, um, yes. and you're talking about communities, pro-social behaviour, you know, groups, uh, and and um, you know, the, the, the stickiness of being part of of something uh, that is values based at, at, at a smaller a smaller level. What is that transition? How do we move? You know, what what are your thoughts about what does the new capitalism need to look like? How how do we do that? Because you know this this personal sort of individual interest sort of space is so you know, inherent, entwined, uh, it's part of our fabric. It's, I imagine it's the same in the US as it is here in Australia where, you know, we've got fences between houses. You know, everyone's got an apportioned lot, if, if you can afford to buy a portion lot of, of land to live on or, or you rent your little land. You know, it, 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 it's so bound up in, 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 you know, the battle of the fittest, so, so to speak. Yes. Oh, it's evolutionary, right? Um, 
Well, I think it, I think it has to be top down and bottom up. And I think we need a social movement in the, in the first half of the 20th century, there was a social movement in this country to, uh, and, and in, in many other countries, to reduce the inequalities that existed. We had as great economic inequality at the turn of the century of the, you know, from 1900 uh, as we do now. And we got better and better. I think the depression had something to do with it. I think the Second World War had something to do with it. It brought people together with unity, but there was a social movement in this country that, uh, you know, there were most of the major civic organizations uh, that exist in this, in this country, the, the Rotary Clubs, the, uh, uh, the Girl Scouts, the PTA, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, all of these different organizations were uh, developed in the first 30 years of the 20th century. And they were all speaking to the needs of people. And most of them developed from local. You know, the Rotary Club started with some clubs here and, and it spread. And so there was a, a, a continuing movement toward uh, we and not I. Uh, Robert Putnam has a new book out uh, called Upswing. I reviewed it in medium.com. If you go to media.com, uh, you can get a, a short course on the on that book but basically what he showed was that the unity was growing and growing and growing and then in the late in the in the, the 1960s it began to fall apart and it was partly due to the war in vietnam uh it was partly due to the sexual revolution uh it was uh but uh and there was a lot of anti-business sentiment uh, there were 19 hundred bombings of businesses in the United States in 1970. And so the business community got really worried and they said, we got to promote business. And that's how the conservative billionaire coalition got started. Uh, a, a memo written by Lewis Powell, who became a, a, a member of the Supreme Court, uh, was a, he wrote this fairly, you know, uh, intelligent memo about why this was happening and what they needed to do. And it prompted the organization and advocacy and, and uh, for free market economics. And you can see the effect that this had because in, in the, when it got started by the 1980s, uh, incoming freshmen in colleges who were, had been surveyed every year about what their values were it kind of flipped and more kids said when well, they want to become rich and famous than said they wanted to grow as a person and contribute to their community. So these are, these are competing values. And by the way, there's a fair amount of evidence that people who are oriented toward, I want to be rich, I want to be famous, have greater psychological problems. Uh, they have uh, relationship problems. Uh, it's not a, a positive thing. But of course, if you're promoting economic competition, uh, you're also creating a society where people do feel threatened and have reason to feel threatened. And so that actually increases the degree to which they want to be rich, they want to be famous. Uh, and so it, you know, it's a self-producing thing. So movements that are trying to encourage cooperation, uh, kindness, and those kinds of things uh, are 
are at the you know the you start at the you know bottom up you're working in schools you're working in families you're working in neighborhoods to get people to be more cooperative and caring that's part of a social movement we need but we also need you know state level province level national level uh, uh, policies uh, that for example uh, reduce economic inequality reduce poverty and so on. So we, we need to do both of those. And that's why, you know, David Sloan Wilson has the individual, the group, the country, the world, you know, we need to select act practices that benefit everyone at every one of those levels. And so, um, you know, I, basically what I'm committed to, and, and I'm in a network that's connected with David and Dennis Embry and Steve Hayes and you know the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, which has met in Australia, it was the last time I was there in Australia. Um, you know there are thousands, there are thousands and thousands of people and hundreds of organizations that are pretty much on the same page about what people need and how we can get there. And we just need to get better and better at that. What you are doing, and I, you know, looked at all the people you're connecting with. You, you know. I want them all on the same group. I want everybody to be, to know, to know that other people are doing this and to support it. And, and, we, and that's why we need to build coalitions of all of these organizations. So, you know, I'm gonna count you and everybody you're connected with as one other node that I've, you know, thanks to you, I've, I, I've gotten connected with and we need to be working together to do all of this. And so if we do, I think two things can happen if we do. One is that we can actually change these problems. We can change them one at a time and this kid gets better and so on. But we can also engage people in activity that is meaningful. And if you listen to Steve Hayes, you know how important meaning is in life and how you can have a meaningful life even in the context of very difficult situations. And so what we're trying to do with these action circles I've got so far, I'm just getting started. We've got about 120 people who've joined Values to Action. You can join Values to Action at valuestoaction.com. And they become part of a movement. They become part of a movement that is, is making their life in part about what you can do. When I give talks uh, to people, I, the first thing I do is ask them questions. Are you satisfied with the state of the world? No, I don't get many people who say yes. Are you unsure what you can do to make a difference about it? Yes. And are you also concerned that you don't have the time to take away from your job and your, your, uh, your family and your, even your recreational activities to become a full-time activist living in poverty, trying to make a difference in the world? But suppose we could get you in contact with five to 10 other people who are clear about what they're trying to do. It's a specific thing. It may not be dealing with everything, but it's dealing with this problem. And, if, and, as, and you are therefore a part of a larger uh, society that's all these people trying to do these things. I think one of the issues that uh, I've encountered with, uh, I'm connected with about six behavioral science organizations, Pro-Social World is one, Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, Society for Behavioral Medicine, National Prevention Science Coalition. Uh, and so we, one of the things that's possible is that people can, think, they can feel good 
about what they're doing because they're connected with other people who are trying to make a difference, kind and caring people who are, are living their lives according to the principles that, that David is promoting in pro-social world. So, and Paul Atkins, by the way, is, uh, you, you know, Paul? Yeah, he, he's uh, probably a kilometer, a kilometer away. So yeah, I, I definitely, well, he's been on, well, on the podcast. Well, I, said hi. <laughs> I, I will, I will. There's, there's obviously a lot of optimism in, in, in this space. There's still a lot of hurdles. Um, you, know, you, you speak very optimistically about, about this space, the, 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 this possibility of change. Um, do you really think it's possible? Oh, I absolutely think it's possible. Uh, I mean, look at the empirical evidence. Read n- the Nurture Effect or, or, the, you know, or, or the National Academy report. Uh, it's absolutely possible. Every time you do a randomized trial and show that this intervention worked, that demonstrates the possibility. The problem we have now is how do we escalate that to you know, affecting whole populations? And we're making a lot of progress on that. Matt Sanders, uh, have you had Matt Sanders on? No, I haven't. I haven't. I will now. <laughs> you know about Triple P? Well, Matt Sanders, uh, do, do you know who he is? No, no. Please. Oh, okay. No. Well, hey, um, Matt Sanders is a psychologist for, and he's at the um, University of uh, Queensland, right? Okay. So um, he was in, the, in sometime in the eight, late seventies, I think he was at uh, a, on a visit to uh, the university, Stanford University, and he was learning about the heart disease prevention program that they were doing. So here were a bunch of people concerned about cardiovascular disease, and they were trying to do a public health campaign, affect the population of people rather than just treat everybody who has the disease. It's a theme I've mentioned before. And so he was a behavioral psychologist working with families. And he said, hey, these public health principles are relevant to uh, family interventions as well. So he was the first person to actually start to try to translate what we'd learned about family interventions into public health campaigns. And, he, and he's done it and he's, he's all over the world. I mean, uh, he, He's a must for your, uh, your podcast. And you can tell him I said that because what he figured out was, well, you know, most people don't want to come for a 10 session, uh, you know, program so they can, you know, get their kid to be less aggressive. Uh, but, oh, uh, we could have these tip sheets and he's got about 40 tip sheets. So here are all the common problems you have for, with young children, right? Won't go to bed, uh, wets the bed tantrums in the supermarket, you know, just a few, right? Okay, here's a, here's what you can do about this. And so he set these up and then he's enabled people in the community who run into parents of young children in this case and, uh, and teaches them how to just say, oh, well, uh, here's some suggestions for what you could do. Why don't you give this a try and let me know how it goes. So they're providing some social support and some social influence to try, uh, you know, what you can do. And so, and he's got all kinds of videos and, and he's now online doing this stuff. And he's, he's affecting the, he's affecting the prevalence of problems in communities. So he teams up with Ron Prince, who's a friend of mine at the University of South Carolina. They've got 
19, 18 counties, and they randomly assign half of them to get triple P, the positive parenting program, and the other half don't, right? And they're focused on young children. And two years later, there were significant differences in the rate of child abuse, hospital-reported child abuse. They've changed the population. So yes, we can. We can do it. Um, the MAD developed the P program. Say it again. The Matt developed the Triple P program because if, if, if ah, then I do know. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Good. Yeah, well, that, that, that's how prevalent uh, his, his work is. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, look, I, I asked the question uh, in, a, in a bit of a cheeky way because I am a you know, massive optimist. I, I actually think what we've done so far is phenomenal and, and historically, you know, things just get, you know, better and better and better. But I think we run into more and more complex challenges and as it becomes a more global conversation you know it, it's a it's a harder more complex question and so i like the idea that you say let's start at the community you know the, the things that you and i can do um you know to get get uh, others involved because we need a lot of uh, foot soldiers so to speak um, yep. all promoting you know pro-social in, in whatever cause is 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 meaningful and important to them i know my wife you know she she advocated for a, a playground uh, last uh, several several years and um uh, you know, she was able to, to achieve that and that's going to, you know, improve and affect uh, our, our whole um, yeah. community for, for years in actual fact, exactly. for, for probably decades. So, um, you know, when someone becomes passionate, you know, big things can happen. Indeed, indeed. Tony, I could speak with you forever. I, 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 I wish we had another uh, 15 hours to, 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 to chat and a few more coffees, but... Uh, uh, I, I will, I will uh, let you go, but is there anything else you wanted to, to add before well, we finish? You know, as a practical matter, if people want to, um, you know, help me uh, and help the society, uh, they could go to valuestaction.com and uh, join $47. Um, and um, and we're, we're building. Uh, I'm also interested in all the people you've talked to and that network of people. Um, and I imagine you have all of those people. So you might be hearing from me about uh, that because, uh, you know, it's, it, I'm, I'm trying to promote values to action because it, I can do these things. It, it's, I'm not trying to get rich. I'm already, actually capitalism been pretty good to me. I'm putting the money into values to action, but I want to connect people and, and, um, and, sh and, and I hopefully show that this can be one way not the only way, but one way of contributing to the change that we so badly need. So I, I appreciate your asking me to be on this and I've enjoyed it. No, no, I think, I think it's a great, great cause. And, and, and the work that you speak of is, is phenomenal. And I think it's important to also mention, you know, the, for, for listeners to go out and, and consider getting the book, the, the nurture effect to, to, I suppose, be inspired, be motivated, you know, be, be excited about what's possible and, and to see real, real world change uh, occurring, um, you know, data, science driven, um, and then, you know, values to action to, to, to start doing something on the ground. Uh, you know, the truth is, I think it all, it makes us all feel uh, a, lot, a lot more um, satisfied and, and, and um, you know, warm and at heart and, and fulfilled, you know, so I think, I think what you're doing is, is, is amazing. Um, 
uh, and uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming onto the show and, and spending that time fun. explaining. And um, please, please uh, send me any other contacts that that, that I can uh, get get in contact with to, to have on the show because it's uh, this is one way, at least for me, that I can contribute and, and is very fulfilling for me, not only on an intellectual basis, but but also knowing that there are lots of uh, listeners out there that that will be inspired and and um, you know to to have the likes of, of, of yourself to, to share that knowledge is, 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 you know, muchly appreciated. So thank you, Tony. Well, and, and do send me a link when you have this and I'll spread the word. Absolutely. Absolutely. When, when, when we are posted up, you'll, you'll get a, a reminder. So good. thanks again, Tony. Have a, have a good uh, afternoon there. Um, and I'll start the day here. So take care and appreciate okay. it again. Bye-bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.